This podcast is brought to you in part by The Sound of Light by Sarah Sundin and Rebel Books, a division of Baker Publishing Group. The Sound of Light is available now wherever books and ebooks are sold. You're listening to the More to Life podcast. In each episode, we'll talk with authors and artists about what happened in their life, where they are now, and how they can help you, while ultimately pointing you to the author of life, Jesus. As guests share their stories, we hope that you'll discover purpose and meaning to all of the moments in your life, whether they be messy, mundane, or monumental. In other words, we hope you'll find more to life. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Sarah. Hi there. How are you? Good. Thanks for joining us today. Good. I was going to say this afternoon, but I guess it's morning for you still, right? It is, yes. (laughs) Hey, but not too early. It's it's 10 10 30 here. So I'm oh, okay. wow, that's not too bad. You're wide away. <laughs> that's great. Oh, well, I'm Andrea and I'm, I'm Brooke. Brooke. This is our second season. So we're glad you can be a part of it. I am too. Thank you for inviting me. Of course. <laughs> and we just were gonna talk about um your latest book, The Sound of Light, and how you became an author. So let's get started. <laughs> All right. So Sarah, have you always wanted to be an author? Uh, well, no. <laughs> I wanted to be a ballerina. I wanted to be a protozoologist. Uh, not very many little girls want to be a protozoologist, but I did. That's studying plankton, you know, little protozoa plankton. Yeah, I was an odd little girl. <laughs> um, I think all little girls who like to read at some point imagine writing books, but I put it on the same plate as being a ballerina, which is like, it would be lovely, but it's not going to happen. And it wasn't very practical. And so I, obviously protozoology. I love science. So I ended up majoring in chemistry and I got a doctorate in pharmacy. I became a pharmacist. I loved it. Um, I really loved using those skills to help people with their health. And um, it was very flexible for young moms. I was able to work one day a week as a pharmacist, which was perfect for getting me out of the house using my brain, but um, you know, still being able to be home with my kids. So I kind of had best, best of both worlds as a young mom. I didn't, didn't occur to me to do anything else. And then I, um, when my youngest son was a year old, I got hit by a story idea. It actually came to me in a dream. It's never happened before. It's never happened since. I convinced it was God flipping on a switch in my brain saying, guess what? Now you're a writer. And um, that story idea would not leave me alone. It was actually a very freaky um, situation because I, I didn't know what I was doing and it was happening to me. Uh, I was a scientist. <laughs> great career and, and suddenly the story idea wouldn't leave me alone and I had to write it and I didn't know what I was doing I pulled out my kids um you know lying paper from school and a number two pencil and just started scribbling because it felt too weird to put in a computer and um I, yeah I, I, I thought it was just going to go away and then I had another idea and another and, another. and um it did take me 10 years to get published uh, which is a little slower than average but I'm not ridiculously and um yeah, I, I, my 15th book just came out. So it's wow. a wild ride, a wild ride for the little girl who wanted to be a protozoologist. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> Thank you for explaining what that word was too. Because <laughs> <laughs> Well, can, can you imagine being a sixth grader? Well, every, every says, what do you want to be when you grow up a little girl? And they're expecting ballerina, right? <laughs> protozoologist. <laughs> That is so funny. Did your parents have any medical background? No, my dad's an engineer though. Oh, okay. My mother 
loves everything. She's just very wide read, um, very interested in everything. So she was interested in science. Um, where I grew up in Southern California, they had these youth science centers that they had like at Cal State Fullerton and um, all these other places for kids. And you go and you spend the day, kind of a science camp environment, but it was only a little one day thing. And we learned about geology and we learned about parasites and all sorts of stuff. And um, I loved those so much. So, but she also made sure I was reading a lot and, you know, taking those ballet lessons. And so she's interested in so many things. And then with my dad's scientific background, it just seemed like a, a good fit. And I was just fascinated by science. So I still am. I think science is, 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 I mean, it explains how God made the world. I mean, it's just amazing. I mean, how, how God designed everything is beautiful. So it was kind of fun going back to uh, my my heroine and the sound of light as a physicist. And so it was kind of fun, you know, diving into some of my little scientific roots, though, though even though physics was my least favorite subject in science. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I actually still have nightmares about quantum mechanics. I got a D in that class and I was thrilled because it was technically a passing grade. So that meant I didn't right. have it again. That was all I cared about. <laughs> I don't blame you. Oh. I'm just curious now, what was the first book that you wrote that God kind of gave you the, the vision um, it, for? It will never be published. Um, it should okay. never be published. I, uh, I wrote a basically a contemporary romance and it ended up being 750 pages. Uh, yeah. Wow. Basically, I just wrote every cute scene that came to me, every bit of banter. Uh, I was just getting it out of my head. I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea about story structure or about plotting or character development. Uh, I just wanted to get the story in my head down. And I just kept writing even after the happy ending. Um, I went to my very writer's conference after I'd finished that book. And um, like all first-time authors, I thought my book was genius. And um, publishers would be just bending over backwards, begging me for this story that was just going to blow the blow their brains out because I mean it was 750 pages of awesome and uh, <laughs> um, well let's say they were not and uh, everybody's eyes kind of bugged out 750 pages and said you need to get that down to 300 to 350 pages well literally cutting a book in half um, I went home and I pouted for a few days and then I got to work and I applied everything I learned in those workshops. And I actually cut that book down to 350 pages, which was an incredible learning experience for me. First of all, to learn my word was not scripture. There is only one scripture and it's definitely not anything written by Sarah Sundin. And um, so that was a really good learning experience for me, how to condense, how to cut, um, how to write more tight. But about that same time, I had another story idea. I wrote that. It was actually a much better structured novel but it also wasn't right for the market and then my idea for my third novel was a distant melody which is my first published book and before the whole self-publishing revolution it was very common that people's first third novels were the ones that were published because your first novel you have no idea what you're doing your second one you're starting to get it together the third one you've you've got your routine down you you get a better feeling for structure and character so that was my third novel and that was my first World War II novel also. And that was the first one that was published. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. I just feel bad for that first story though. I hope I something comes of it. I know. I, and I do have a heart, a, a sweet, it's a sweet place in my heart, but yeah. at it now it's like, oh my gosh, it's a mess. I mean, <laughs> it's like, but um, I, I still love those characters, but 
um, they did their job. That that story did its important work because before that, it never occurred to me that I could finish a novel. I mean, what, looking at a novel is like, how do you do that? How do you write that many words and make a story out of it? So the process of writing that book was so wonderful for me. And then obviously the process of editing it was, was really crucial for me. So um, it definitely served a purpose. And um, I will always be grateful for that story and um, for those characters. That's a good point. I like that lesson. It might not see the light of day, but it did serve a purpose. Yeah, yeah. God so, doesn't do anything. That's so right. Since your first story came to you through a dream, like how else do you get your inspiration? Um, actually, since then, almost all of them have come through research. And um, because, you know, I wrote my, my, my first World War II book actually came out of, and it's either research or what if questions, and they're often combined. But the my first World War II novel, A Distant Melody, came. I was actually writing a contemporary novel, and I had this idea for this couple that met, and they got separated, and he went through these great lengths to find her. And I thought, well, it's not going to work in a contemporary setting because he Google her, and it's over. It's not even a short story. <laughs> it's like, but in a, not, in, in a historical setting, it would be really sweet. And so I imagined, well, let's do World War II um, because I, I was naive, and I thought, oh, it wasn't that long ago. It'll be really easy to research. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea. I had no, and that's good. If I had known how much research I would have had to do for that story and for all the rest of the stories, I wouldn't have started. So I fell in love with the story first and then fell in love with the research. But um, since then, um, you know, writing that one, and then I was, I was writing that story and it was about B-17 bomber pilots and based in England, I realized I was only telling a portion of the story of the war of the, of the B-17 bomber pilots. And I thought, well, what if my hero has two brothers? And they follow his footsteps and I could trace it through the whole war. I was like, oh, okay. And then boom, that and it became a series. And so that was what I was able to sell. And then I was, I was doing research on one of those books where the heroine is a nurse. I was reading about the flight nurses. I'm like, ooh, those are, I mean, talk about, you know, pioneering women. So I wrote a series about flight nurses. And it's, it's kind of built like that where I'm, I'm doing research and something really, um, you know, and piques my attention, like, ooh, I want like to write about that. And, and that's what happened on The Sound of Light, too. I just kept reading about Denmark and World War II. I'm like, wow, that's a great story. And one I haven't seen in Christian fiction. And um, like, I want to tell that story. So, you know, that came out of research. It's, it's usually it's a com combination of a what if somebody did X and X or um, a combination of you know, like, you know, some, some romantic spark. Okay, ooh, I wouldn't tell if, you know, if, friends falling in love story or whatever it is and um and then building those pieces together I love the world war ii concept I read a book um all the light we cannot see and that has just gotten me so hooked on world war ii stuff yeah. and I've read some of your books and they are amazing it's filling that need for my world war ii <laughs> fix so thank you You're welcome. so what prompted your interest in that particular time mostly family stories so my grandfather on my father's side was a um, pharmacist mate in the medic in the Navy, which is actually a medic. Um, they, the Navy has different names for everything. They don't call anything by its normal English words. And my son was in the Navy. And so it was, it was really funny having phone calls with him. And he'd say these things like, what are you saying, Matthew? He'd have to translate it into English. Like, I'm sorry, I'm speaking Navy. So, <laughs> so yes, my, my grandfather was in the Navy as a medic, but they called him a pharmacist mate. So, um, Anyway, um, he told stories and his brother was a B-17 bomber pilot, which is what inspired that. that for, that's why I made that first series about B-17 bomber. And um, what I didn't realize 
at the time or growing up was how special it was that they were storytellers. Because most of the men, when they came home from war, their way of dealing with the trauma they had experienced was to not talk about it. You know, let's, you know, think about the 50s, it was all about um, peace and prosperity and home and, and making a good life for your kids. And so many of the men is like, just put that behind you. I'm focusing on now, I'm fo focusing on the future. And that was healthy for them. That was how they got through what they'd experienced. So what my grandfather, my great uncle did, which is telling stories is unusual. So I was blessed by that. And I heard all their stories and I heard my grandmother's stories on the home front. And my other grandfather on my mother's side, um, he had a medical condition which kept him out of the armed forces, but um, he was a professor of German and he used his skills and language to train um, American soldiers. And um, he actually inspired one of my novels, um, When Twilight Breaks. So because of that, because, and my, my parents were born during the war. So their childhoods were very influenced by it. And so they told stories about it. And my mother was always reading books about World War II. I mean, this is, my mom has to tell everybody about what she's reading, um, which I love. I mean, I, I kind of got double stories growing up. I had the stories I was reading and then the stories my mom was reading because she was telling me about them. And so she was telling me all these World War II stories. So I was kind of steeped in it. And oh, and my father always had um, World War II documentaries on, you know, the, the um, war at sea, the um, victory at sea with the theme music. I mean, it really, when I, I got a DVD of it playing, it's like, oh my gosh, it took me back to my childhood because my dad was always watching those documentaries. So it just seemed like a natural fit for me. When I first started writing my um Actually, both my grandmothers were still alive. And so my, my grandmother was, one of my grandmothers lived near me and she was so excited about me writing World War II. So she's telling all her stories. And um, so that was, unfortunately, she, she passed away before my first book was published, but, but she was such a cheerleader for me. And so I, I was really blessed to be able to hear these stories and being able to start writing. <clears throat> Obviously, I'm, it breaks my heart because we're losing our World War II veterans right now. They're in their 90s now. And now the ones who are surviving are the ones who joined up when they were 17, 18. I want to hold on to that generation. I'm so fond of it. That's my grandparents' generation. I love them to pieces. And, um, but how wonderful it was for me to start writing when so many of them were alive and telling their stories. Well, could you share a little summary about your latest book, The Sound of Light? So The Sound of Light um, takes place in Denmark in World War II. And then the hero is Baron Henrik Elefelt. He is a, um, a nobleman who's lived a life only for himself. And when the Nazis come into Denmark, he realizes that his life is just a shambles. And he decides to do something good with his life for the first time ever. And he takes inspiration from Copenhagen's Little Mermaid statue. And the Little Mermaid gave up her legs so that she could have um or gave her for voice so she could have legs. And that's basically what Henrik does. He gives up his voice as a nobleman so he can have legs, so he can work with the resistance. And because he is a, an Olympic rower, he uses his rowing skills to take messages across from Denmark to Sweden. There's a 10 mile wide strip of water between Denmark and Sweden. And so he can row that, I couldn't, but he could. And, um, he takes on the code name of Howman, which means merman in, in Danish. And he goes undercover, he makes a secret identity for himself as a basic, you know, he's a shipyard worker and he, um, 
is almost silent because if he speaks too much, he'll betray his you know, noble upbringing. And so he moves into this boarding house with um, Dr. Elsa Jensen, who is our nuclear physicist. <laughs> and, and she gets roped into printing resistance newspapers by her best friend, which obviously is a dangerous thing to do. And meanwhile, Elsa and Henrik are getting to know each other, but he is playing a not terribly bright shipyard worker. And here she is a nuclear physicist. And yet they're drawn, they're very much drawn to each other. And she's drawn to his character and she has to overcome a lot of her own prejudices. And um, there's a, so there's a sweet romance that goes on there with secret identities, which was so much fun to write. And when they're both working for the resistance and the Danish resistance was such a fascinating topic to um, research and to write about. And um, the incredible story about how the ordinary Danes rescued the Jews of Denmark, almost every single one of the Danish Jews survived. So I was able to work that story into my novel too. And how long did it take for you to do the research for the specific book? Um, in general, it takes me a year to write each book. And the research is kind of an ongoing process. I do some, um, I, I signed the contract for this book, ooh, oh, maybe five years ago. So when I was doing the research for that proposal, I you know make sure the story, I, I had a story idea, but did it work? So I had to make do some basic research into Denmark and World War II, um, into um, the Institute for Theoretical Physics, where Elsa was, um, into um, basics of the resistance to make sure my basic story idea held together. And it, there's nothing worse for a historical novelist than to start writing a novel and then hit on some really crucial detail and realize their entire story falls apart. So I don't want to get into that situation. But then I set the book aside because I'm working on other projects and, um, but when it time comes for me to really start working on a particular novel, so it takes about a year and I do a lot of pre-writing or outlining first. That usually takes me about three months. So I'm doing a lot of research during that phase um, as I'm structuring my story, but then I'm doing research all the way through the rough draft and even into the editing process. And my editor is amazing. She'll send me questions and um, questions my research. And I really appreciate that because, you know, she's caught me on a few things like, oh man, I missed that. So I, um, so I really want to be accurate. I really want to honor the people who lived that by getting their details right. I can see how some of your personal experience though comes into your writing as well with the science background and yeah. that's yes. really neat. I just had to go back and um, revisit a lot of physics, which I, I said was kind of a nightmare, but, <laughs> but it also was kind of fun mentally going back into the lab and um, Elsa experiences because you know she's a, a woman in a man's field and this is the 1940s. And even when I was a chemistry major in the 1980s, which was, uh, you know, more uh, easier era for women in science, still there were very few girls in the um, chemistry department. And I had a TA when I was doing labs and he'd come by and like, oh, here, let me do this for you. And he just kind of take over my experiment and start doing it for me. I was like, dude, I can do it myself. <laughs> I, it was, it was rather insulting. And yeah. uh, Oh, the poor little girl can't do it. So I'll do it for her. Mm -hmm. Even, even as recently as the 1980s, there was that sense of discrimination yeah. against women in the sciences. And um, I didn't feel that pharmacy was very um, female friendly, but not as much the straight sciences, not so much. So I was able to take some of that feeling of being mm -hmm. condescended to or set to side and, and just intensify those feelings. Cause obviously in the 1940s it was even more so. And yeah. she, 
a physicist that she's working under who is very rude and um, basically does not think any women should be in science and he's going to make sure that Elsa does not succeed. And um, so <laughs> she has to figure out what to do with that. <laughs> um, I also read that there were some real life events too that you included in this story. Can you share maybe a couple of those or one that's more meaningful to you? I think really it was the rescue of the Danish Jews. I think it is one of the most inspirational stories to come out of World War II. And when the Germans decided to round up the, the Danish Jews, first of all, there was a German man. A, he was the shipping attache to, um, to Copenhagen. And he found out about the plan. And he actually, this is a German man, remember? <laughs> and he leaked the plan to some Danish politicians. And the Danish politicians told the Jewish rabbis. And then it just kind of spread. Um, it was word of mouth. Denmark is a small country, but it was basically word of mouth and a very grassroots situation. They were said, okay, in two nights time, they're going to round up every Jew in Denmark. And as one, the Danish people said, can't do that. These are our, neighbors, our, our friends, our, our colleagues. You can't do that to our people. So they took them into hiding. Um, they gave them the keys to the country cottages um, and they hid almost every single Jew in Denmark. They were um, over 7,000 Jews in Denmark at the time. And when the Germans went to arrest them, they were only able to find about 500. And almost all of them were at a, um, a senior living facility and it just got overlooked. And it was yeah. very heartbreaking that there were so many elderly people that were arrested. But in general, they were all hidden. And then, then they took on this incredible um, job of transporting them all across to Sweden. And they put them in fishing boats and they put them in yachts and they put them in the, the holds of cargo ships. And there were people who rowed them across one by one in kayaks and racing skulls. And um, Henrik's character was inspired by a real man named Newt Christensen, who was an Olympic rower. And he ferried 20 to 30 Jews across that strait of water one by one in his racing skull. So what are that story? Like, ooh, I want to tell that. I mean, 7,000 people, uh, just an outstanding um, job. And as I said, it wasn't an organized thing where somebody on high said, okay, people, this is what we're going to do. It was individuals and just ordinary people like you and me saying to their neighbor, do you have someplace to hide? And, and it's such an incredible lesson for all of us. Like if we all as ordinary people are willing to do one little thing, what great good can be accomplished. Amen. Yeah, for sure. So do you feel like there was something that God was teaching you personally through writing this book then? Always. Um, I, most of us writers have a, a running joke that we kind of get nervous when we up with a spiritual story for our characters because we know God is going to work with that in us, in our lives, and <laughs> it never fails. And um, for Elsa, she has to work on learning how to speak up. She's um, very reserved. She's also very, she prides herself on holding her tongue when she's angry, but then she's being abused by her, um, her physicist who's um, in charge of her department. And she has to learn how to speak up um, in a polite way, in a respectful way, but to speak up for um, what, what is right and good. And then in a bigger way, she wants to speak up for the rights of those people who are being oppressed by the Germans. And it, that can be a very dangerous thing. 
And um, like Elsa, I'm the type of person, I don't like to make waves. I like everybody happy. I hate conflict. It makes me just, oh, just turns me up inside. And so when, you know, when uh, there's conflict in the family, I, I can barely eat. It's just awful. So <laughs> it's been a lifelong lesson for me to learn, you know, how to speak up, when to speak up. And of course, the temptation for those of us who don't like conflict, you hold it all in, you hold it all in, and then it explodes. And then it's, it's not pretty and it's not respectful and it's just nasty. And so learning how to, to do that. So I was learning alongside Elsa and then Henrik has his own thing where he um, he's concerned about over misusing power. Um, his father is a harsh man. Um, he runs a, he's, he's a baron and he runs a ship, um, the shipping company and he, a shipbuilding company. And he's, He's cruel uh, oftentimes. He's you know, not, a, not a nice man. And he took it out on his son. And um, Henrik feels he's like his father. And he has a tendency to be harsh with people. And the what he has to learn is how to use authority well. And he's actually taken the opposite where he's overcorrected. And you know, here, now he is this humble shipyard worker. He doesn't want to be in any position of authority because he's afraid he's going to abuse it. And so he has to learn how to take the authority that God wants him to have. He has these great talents and he needs to use them, but he needs to use them well. So learning to use, um, to be a good leader um, so that you are uplifting the people you're leading and, and not, um, not harming them. Mm-hmm. You know, as a mother, I have to be careful. I have young adult kids and you know, sometimes you have to be careful what you say with them. I mean, you can, it's hard. You could say your words have a, a horrible effect on, on people if you use them poorly. And um, also I'm you know, in a leadership position as an author. Um, I teach, I'm taking a hiatus this year because we just moved, but um, I, I teach women's Bible studies. I teach Sunday school. And when you're, you're in a position of authority, you do have to be careful, um, more careful with your words even than you do in other situations. So um, I was always learning alongside Henrik too. <laughs> yeah. Those are good lessons to learn for sure. I think we can all relate to those. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so since you like to write about World War II, is there any other era that you might be interested in writing about? <laughs> oh, I'm, I love history. I, um, I love reading historical fiction because I can travel to different times. Um, when I first started writing, I was thinking, oh, I could write um, Civil War, Revolutionary War, or, you know, um, 1920s, there's, you know, so many fascinating eras. At this point in time, I am, I have such a deep base of research with World War II. The thought of going to another era and starting all over is really daunting. And right now, World War II is huge for um, fiction. And I, for the first time in my life, I'm trendy at something. I've never been trendy. <laughs> And when my first my first book came out in 2010, World War II was not big. It was prairie romance, and um, people were saying, "Well, why don't you write a prairie romance?" Like, well, I've never milked a cow. I don't. I can't write. A <laughs> like, I'm a suburban girl. You know, I, I don't know. I don't, I've never lived on a farm. So, but the market changed, and World War II is huge right now. Almost, almost getting. I don't know if it might be getting oversaturated. There are a lot of World War II books right now. I'm getting a lot of endorsement requests and influencer. I can't keep up. It used to be every new new World War II book. Yes, I am endorsing that and I'm influencing for it because there were you know only three of us a year. Um, but now there are dozens and I, I can't keep up with them all, which breaks my heart because I want to help the other World War II authors desperately. 
But anyway, um, while the market is hot for World War II, I'm definitely sticking with it. And um, my my publisher and my agent seem to think that because I, I've been writing World War II before the trend, I'm well established in it so that when the trend passes, it's just trends to you, that I'll probably still be able to keep writing in this genre. But we'll see. And if the Lord leads me to something else, then I'm more than willing because, um, you know, it's his stuff. <laughs> right now, I keep getting the World War II ideas and my publisher likes it and my agent likes it. So I'm just going to keep rolling with it for however long I can and cross the next bridge when I come to it. <laughs> yeah. Well, talking about some of the books and things that you have written and the different places that you write about, have you been to the, some of those places? I have. Um, unfortunately, I was not able to get to Denmark for this book. Okay. Uh, breaks my heart. And yeah. um, But COVID, I had three trips actually scheduled to Copenhagen. All three were canceled oh. outbreaks of COVID. And so it just, it just didn't. And then we moved. And you know, when you're moving, you there's no traveling going on with the move, um, yeah. the money and the time. So I was not able to get to Copenhagen. My husband's been there. He was there on a business trip. So I just had a lot of research, um, just probably more so than I have for other books because I have not been there. Uh, I have been blessed to be able to go to um, you know, London and Munich and Paris and um, Boston and uh, almost every other place that I have set stories. So um, yeah, I think the only other place that I set stories that I did not visit was for my Wings of the Nightingale series, which was um, about three flight nurses and the first novel and a half were set in North Africa. And when I was that, it was Arab Spring. So yeah, <laughs> go there. But, <laughs> but the rest of the series was set in Italy and Southern France. So I was able to visit those places. Do you have a favorite place that you've been to in your travel? Oh, um, London. I absolutely love London. Okay. Oh, yeah. God. And my, my next book is set in London. So that's been Oh, fun. Nice. And we're hoping to make a trip. Um, unfortunately, I'm able to build off of past trips for that. Um, we haven't, since we just moved this summer, the thought of travel right now. Like, <laughs> so we're hoping to be able to go maybe this summer or um, autumn to make a trip. And especially for the other two books in that contract, which are set in um, the far north of Scotland and one set in the Channel Islands. So, and I have um, not actually been to those specific places. So I really want to go there. Yes, that is exciting. Very neat. Now, The Sound of Light comes out in February. What's the one about London? Um, it doesn't have a title yet. We're actually working on the okay. title. No, I had some an email from my publisher with some okay. titles that we're working on. That will come out in February of 2024. Okay. Which, by the way, the covers of your books are so beautiful. They're mm -hmm. so intriguing. And I like how they all kind of, like the series at least, they mm -hmm. all match. And then I like the, the back of the girl. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my publisher, they just do amazing. I've been spoiled rotten with beautiful covers. Well, we're excited to see it. Yeah. So is there a place that readers can connect with you if they wanted to yeah. chat with you? My website, um, sarahsunden.com. And I am on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. So find me and say hi. Thanks for listening to the More to Life podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to our podcast and join us again. We would also love for you to invite a friend and write a review, which helps others find our podcast. 
And for more encouraging stories and testimonies from authors and artists, you can also visit our website, mtlmagazine.com, where we hope you'll find more to life.